0: John the Baptist uh, appeared in the wilderness, and uh, he was Jesus' cousin. Uh, He wore strange clothes. He ate weird things, locusts, uh, dipped in honey. I don't know if anybody's ever tried that. I know I haven't, and don't intend to. And a whole bunch of people went out into that wilderness near the Jordan River to listen to John and to hear his message But it was a tough message. I'm not sure we would be flocking to people who have the message that that John has. His message is basically this, repent. And uh, repent is one of those uh, churchy words that we might think we know what it means, um, but it's also got a lot of baggage. Most of Christian history, people have thought that repent kind of means feeling bad or feeling sorry. And uh, so it kind of goes along with confession, that confession is saying sorry, so repentance must be feeling sorry. And you need both of those things, the thinking was, in order to get forgiveness. So you've got to be sorry, repent, and then say sorry, confess, and then you'll be forgiven. This is wrong, I'll tell you right now. This is not really what the Bible says. And we need to actually get back to what this word really means in the Bible. It's a Greek word, metanoia, and at its most basic level, it just means change of mind. That's what repent means, it just means change of mind. And you can even find the the roots of this idea in the Old Testament. So the New Testament is where you hear this word, metanoia, in Greek. In the Old Testament, you'll find uh, this concept that gets built of a conversion or a reconversion of one's heart. Um, And often the way the Old Testament talks about this concept is in uh, the idea of turning. So you're going in one direction... And what needs to happen is you need to change, you need to make a course correction, you need to turn. It might be a total turn, you might be going a totally opposite direction to to God, and you've got to turn and make a 180 degree turn and head toward God. But it could also be that you're just off the mark, you're just missing the mark a bit, and you need to turn a little toward God, because you're not quite there. And this is kind of how the Old Testament builds this concept when John comes on the scene and says, Change your mind. Repent. Another way of maybe thinking about this is sort of a a change of of self. And so we hear that John's baptism was for for repentance, for the forgiveness of sins. And so we still have this built-in idea of there's a change of self in order to receive forgiveness. So if you change, you can receive forgiveness, and the idea is you're going to then become a member of God's kingdom. In other words, you are, are then under the protection of the king. Now, John has more to his proclamation than just repent. He also has this idea that he talks about that one is coming who I'm not even worthy to untie the thong of his sandal, and that one who's coming will baptize you with more than water. So John says, I baptize you with water, but the one who's coming will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And we heard from Mark's gospel today, and Mark just leaves it there, but in uh, Matthew and Luke, uh, it's added on to the end that that John the Baptist said, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And I think when John proclaimed this message, I think he really meant the same kind of thing that we think about throughout Christian history of, you know, repent now, and there's urgency because Jesus is coming, and he's coming with the judgment of spirit, and fire. Like, fire is not kind of a nice idea, really, right? He's coming with fire. He's going to burn up what's bad. And that you can find in the Old Testament as well, that when God acts decisively, it's going to burn away the evil from the world. And so this is kind of John's message. Repent, but let's get it right. Change of mind. But his reasoning is, is because one is coming with judgment, with the spirit, and with fire. But right away, Jesus actually shows up, right? I mean, John was talking immediately. He's coming, and there he is, and Jesus comes out to John to listen to him and also to be baptized by him. So Jesus submits to baptism, and this is really surprising because why would Jesus get baptized by John? John's baptism and his proclamation is, you've got to change in order to receive forgiveness to escape the judgment. Well, Jesus doesn't need to change. Jesus hasn't done anything wrong, nor will he, nor does he ever. Jesus doesn't need forgiveness because there's no sin to forgive. And he doesn't need to escape judgment because he's the one bringing it, according to John. Yet Jesus submits himself to baptism. And I think there are three things that we can learn from the fact of Jesus getting baptized, and then there are three other things that happen when Jesus gets baptized, and those last three things, they change how we relate to God. From this idea of one coming in judgment, and we've got to escape that, to something else entirely. And so the first three things things that we might learn from Jesus getting baptized which are are pretty important. The first thing that we can learn is that Jesus is human. And so he submits himself to baptism the same way anyone else would do in his time going out to see John. He he's just like every he's putting himself on the same playing field as everybody else. I'm like you. I'm not saying that Jesus isn't divine. I'm saying we need to remember that he's human. He's also divine. But him getting baptized by John reminds us of his humanity. The second thing is that Jesus is committed to living his life completely toward God. So it's not so much that his repentance that he's committing to is turn away from something and toward God, but more that his repentance, if you're going to call it that, is not necessarily a change, but it's, but it's he's going to stay turned toward God. And so he's he's doing the same basic commitment that those people were doing with John when they were coming to him to be baptized for repentance. So that's the second thing, committed to living his life completely turned toward God, and that's exactly what Jesus did. And the third one is that when he gets baptized, he unites himself to us. There's something more than just his humanity that we're united to him with. But he's united to all the baptized, to all those who come and live their life in this way. And the great thing about this is that when Jesus gets baptized and then we move on and read about his life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension and his reign, we, we see what a baptized life looks like. And so the third way is that he unites himself to us and is also an example for us. He shows us what a baptized life looks like. So those are good and important. But then there are three things that happen in Jesus' baptism, which would have been absolutely surprising in the moment they happened. The first is that it gets told that the heavens are open, and in Matthew and Luke, the word that's used is just simply opened, the heavens were opened, but in Mark, and I like Mark's version here, is he uses the term ripped apart. The heavens are ripped apart. It's kind of this violent word, and it's the same word that gets used at the end of the gospel when the temple curtain is ripped in two when Jesus is on the cross. So it's kind of interesting that it matches up with that end. But here, this is illustrating to us in a really uh, dramatic way that with Jesus, there is now no barrier between heaven and earth. And both of those cases are true, where the heavens are ripped open, but also where the temple veil is ripped and it opens up Uh, access to the Holy of Holies where it believed that, that God lived, God's presence was on earth. So that in Jesus now, there is no barrier between us and God. He is the way. The second thing that happens in Jesus' baptism is that the Holy Spirit descends like a dove and lands on him. It's not that the Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove, so... Uh, I know there's really nice art of a dove flying, um, but it's a metaphor, everybody. Um, It's uh, that the Holy Spirit descended like a dove, so the way a dove would descend, the Holy Spirit descended. We don't know what it really looked like in that moment, but I think, for me, this is trying to say that something visible happened that, that people could see. And there was a descent out of the ripped heavens by the Holy Spirit, and I think what we can learn from this happening in Jesus' baptism and it, and it being visible and nothing horrible happening is that the Holy Spirit coming upon you is decisively a good thing. So the buildup that John is bringing, I, I think, is actually that the Holy Spirit, Jesus is coming, is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, it's this, it's this judgment image. But what happens in Jesus' baptism is the Holy Spirit descends like a dove, like that's a much more peaceful image than the violence that... That John might be proclaiming. And a lot of translations will say. And alighted on him. Or landed on him. Or rested on him. I mean that's not a a judgment image. And so you'll notice when we baptize Getty. Right after the baptism. There's a blessing. Which asks for the Holy Spirit to be upon him and with him. And that's a good thing. That's not a judgment thing. It's not the fire to to burn you up or something like that. The picture of the dove is quite different, yet the spirit is very powerful. So don't think that that this is just a a peaceful image means a weak image. Now we don't know uh, very much about the Holy Spirit. We don't talk about the Holy Spirit very much. And so we can spend a bit of time here just kind of thinking about, well, what does it Uh, Like John says, I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He's right in what he says, even if he might not be thinking the same thing that actually happens. And I think what we've got to do is first get at what the word baptism is even about, because most of us, when we think about baptism, we're thinking about what we do here, or in some churches where they'll have a big tank and we dump people under the water, or, you know, like that's what we think of as baptism. But the word baptism means to dip or to immerse in. And so, you know, ours, our symbolism isn't quite as good as actually getting dipping in, because we're not going to take Getty and try to dip him in here. So we've got to imagine. Right? That that's what baptism is about, is an immersion. So think about the phrase this way. John says, I've, I've dipped you in water. I, I've dipped you in the Jordan River. But when Jesus comes, he's going to immerse you in the Holy Spirit. See, see, that's a different thing than what we think of with baptism. He's going to immerse you in the Holy Spirit. See, in John's baptism, what happens is you get some water on you, and then you're left on your own. Repent. Get on with it. It's up to you. It's up to the individual. The water is a sign that points to the individual's commitment to live a life of repentance, and then it's up to that person to live it out. But with Jesus, you are baptized with the Holy Spirit. It's no longer up to you, but the Holy Spirit who lives within you. Life in the Spirit of Christ isn't solely about repentance, although repentance is part of it. We're asked to change. But it's not about adherence or non-adherence to the law. It's not about easing your conscience. It's not even about gaining salvation for yourself. It's about trust in the Spirit who is with you and in you. So repentance looks like turning toward what the Spirit of God wants for you and turning away from those things in your life that oppose the Spirit's active will. It's something actually far bigger than than the law of God or the commandments of God, yet it's consistent with them. So that's the the second thing that happens in Jesus' baptism, the descent of the Holy Spirit upon him and resting on him. The third thing that happens is a voice from heaven, God's voice, declaring that Jesus is his beloved son with whom he is well pleased. I want you to notice when this happens in the Gospel of Mark and even in the Gospel of Matthew, Luke, Luke, And uh, John has a reference to it as well. And I want you to think about how much Jesus has done at that point in the gospel. In Mark, Jesus has done nothing. We don't even have the Christmas story in Mark. This is Jesus' first appearance, is at his baptism. Matthew and Luke, we have some Christmas stories. Um, He does a little more in Luke than he does in Matthew, because there's a story about him being 12 in the temple, and... uh, but really, at this point, Jesus hasn't done anything. I mean, all the stories that we might know about Jesus walking in water, changing water into wine, um, you know, all the healings that he did, the message that he brought, the teaching he brought. I mean, even if you have doubts about Jesus being the Savior or, uh, or the King or God, even if you're not sure about that, Most of us can look at Jesus, even just as a historical figure, and realize, well, he he was pretty, pretty amazing. I mean, the teaching alone is remarkable. But at this point, he hasn't done any of that. And what does God say to him? I'm so pleased with you. It's a really strange declaration at the beginning of the gospel, yet this is exactly how God deals with his children. Not just Jesus, but all of us. Uh, Look at Genesis 1. We just read a couple of verses of Genesis 1 today. But what happens? God creates things, and then he calls everything good. But, But nothing's happened yet. I mean, human beings haven't even been created yet, and God is already saying, oh, this is great. God is not waiting for us to perform for him in order to be pleased with us. This is God's declaration, I think at every baptism. You are my child, the beloved, with you I'm well pleased. And our belief about baptism stems from our grounding in God's grace. The, the fancy theological term for it is, is prevenient grace. Just remember the pre part, because it means the grace that comes before. That there's grace that comes after, which is the one that we often think about, where we've done something wrong and we ask for forgiveness and God is gracious and so he forgives, that's grace that comes after. But prevenient grace is the grace that's there before we've even ever done anything. And that's the grace that we celebrate today. This is why we'll baptize anyone of any age, because God's prevenient grace is for infants and children and adults. For anyone who has not yet been baptized and wants to trust their life to Jesus or has parents who want to trust their child to Jesus, we'll baptize them because we'll put no restrictions on God's prevenient grace. This week, uh, I wrote a little bit about this idea of grace. Um, And so some of you might have read this, but I'm gonna read it to you. And it was just titled, Do You Get Grace? This is one of the best analogies I've ever heard for explaining the concept of God's grace. And I'm not sure where I first heard it, but it stuck with me. Imagine a class at the beginning of a school semester, and the teacher hands out a course outline, explains the topics of the class, and goes over the expectations. She tells her students, if you stick to the outline, work hard, and do all the assignments to the best of your ability, you will receive an A in this class. I'm sure a lot of us have heard that speech. And this is how we usually think God operates. God gives us the Bible as an outline. God gives us assignments, things we should do, things we shouldn't do. And God reminds us that if we follow the outline and do all the right things, that we will get an A in life and in the afterlife. Now, this is actually a really tough game to win. It's hard to get an A in the game of life. When we get enough life experience under our belts, we realize that we simply aren't able to meet all the expectations. We will miss the mark. We will make mistakes. We will sometimes deliberately break the rules or cheat. It's really hard to earn that A. And so when we first learn of grace, it goes something like this. It's the end of the school term. We haven't quite tried our hardest. Maybe we haven't measured up, or maybe we have royally messed up. But the teacher invites us up to the desk, And instead of a disapproving look, we see a smile and an eraser comes out. And our F or our D is erased. And the teacher says, I'm giving you another chance. And as we go in grace, this quickly becomes our picture of God, a God who erases the record of our wrongs and gives lots and lots of second chances. But even this view of God's grace isn't quite right, or not quite full enough. See, God is more like the teacher that comes into the class on the very first day and declares that everyone has already been assigned an A. And after that, God gives the outline, lays out the expectations, and asks for the students to work hard to the best of their ability. And yes, we'll mess up along the way, and God forgives and gives second chances, but God's grace is not just the response to the mess we make. God's grace is the starting point of our relationship with God. Biblically, we usually start with the banishment from the Garden of Eden, and then spend an inordinate amount of time talking about the work it takes for restoration. We instead need to start with walking with God in the garden. Or even earlier, God lovingly creating everything and calling it good. God's grace is always the first starting point. That's prevenient grace. Now, why does any of this make any difference? Understanding prevenient grace makes a difference because it affects how we view God. See, when God's main function is to forgive our sin... The starting place for God's activity is then rooted in God's response to humans making messes. And when we do that, we have a distorted picture of who God is in relation to us and who we are in relation to God. I want you to imagine a parent's starting place with their child being the child's disobedience. That's actually really hard to imagine. But try to do it. The parent, if, even if that's the starting place, can still be loving and forgiving. But what will happen is the child's view of the parent becomes that, that they're someone with authority who just likes to forgive them. Consequently, their view of themselves becomes as one who makes mistakes and needs forgiveness rather than as a beloved child. That might sound familiar about how we think about God. If the starting place for the relationship is the child's disobedience, it's far more likely that the parent will be viewed as an angry authority figure. That might sound familiar as well for how we view God. So instead of the starting place between parent and child being the child's disobedience, it needs to be simply love between them. If we do that, we're on the right track. This love includes the parent looking on the child and being amazed at the child's goodness. Parents, you know what I'm talking about. It also includes forgiveness when the child messes up, but that forgiveness is never the starting place. It's a restarting place. Grace was abounding long before the child was ever disobedient. And so the child ends up seeing a parent who doesn't just love to forgive them, but a parent who loves them for who they are and forgives them when they make mistakes. We need to know that God's grace precedes anything we do or don't do. That God truly loves us unconditionally. Otherwise, any hope of a relationship with that God of infinite love, caring, and power will be distorted. And ultimately, it will be emptied of any effect it may have on us. We need to claim a love that goes before us, surpasses us, and surprises us with its lack of conditions and lack of limits. Baptism celebrates the core truth that God loved us before we ever did anything. Baptism celebrates that anything that we do that is good or right is response to what God has already done for us in Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. And it's not that these things become effective in baptism. It's that baptism is a sign of God's grace pointing to the reality of God's limitless and unconditional love. In baptism, the church makes a statement that we are claimed and marked as children of God. In baptism, we celebrate that who you are as a child of God is not defined by what you do, but is defined solely by God's grace and God's life-giving spirit. Thanks be to God for his prevenient grace. Amen.